From finance and commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. This special episode of Beyond the Skyline features an experts forum on affordable housing. Housing instability and homelessness across Minnesota are being exacerbated by the converging crises of COVID-19 and persistent racial injustice, presenting a serious blow to our social and economic stability. Our panelists discussed how Minnesota's long-term prosperity and economic competitive edge hinges on elevating housing as a priority and making a commitment to ensure we build a housing system that works for everyone and that access to that prosperity is available to all. Our panelists were C. Ann Thomas, a broker at ABC Realty, Warren Hansen, President and CEO of Greater Minnesota Housing Fund, Jennifer Ho, Minnesota Housing Commissioner, Colin Barr, President of the Central Division for Ryan Companies and Co-Chair of the Itasca Project Housing Task Force, Lisa Clark, Executive Director of Destination Medical Center Economic Development Agency, and Trent Bowman, VP and Community Development Officer at Old National Bank. Our wide-ranging conversation took place via Zoom on August 25th. So first, let me say thank you to all of you for uh, attending, participating. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to a really great conversation today. Um, Thank you to all of our viewers and listeners out there too. I appreciate um, you joining us for a good conversation today too. Um, Before I uh, introduce our speakers, um, I'm going to also thank our sponsor for today and our sponsor is Prosperity's Front Door and I'll read a little bit about who they are in case our viewers don't know who they are. Um, Prosperity's Front Door is Minnesota's statewide network of business, government, community, and nonprofit leaders promoting bipartisan public-private solutions to ensure everyone has a place to call home and live in a thriving community. Its work stems from the governor's task force on housing which produced the report called More Places to Call Home, Investing in Minnesota's Future in 2018. And we'll probably be talking about that report later on too. It includes six key goals and 30 supporting recommendations to address Minnesota's housing challenges. The state's first ever Minnesota's housing scorecard was released by Prosperity's Front Door this past February to track progress on our housing goals. It also highlights emerging trends and exciting innovations taking place across the sectors throughout the state. Minnesota's long-term prosperity and economic competitive edge hinges on elevating housing as a priority, a commitment to ensure we build a housing system that works for everyone and access to that prosperity is available to all. So with that, I'm gonna introduce our panelists today and talk a little bit about what we're gonna cover and then we'll just jump right in. So joining us today um, is Commissioner Jennifer Hogue. She's the Commissioner of the Minnesota Housing um, Agency. We have Trent Bowman, 
He's a vice president and community development officer of Old National Bank. Uh, Colin Barr, who's the president of the Central Division for Ryan Companies and co-chair of the Itasca Project Housing Task Force. Lisa Clark is the executive director of Destination Medical Center Economic Development Agency. Cian Thomas, broker of ABC Realty. And Warren Hansen, president and CEO of Greater Minnesota Housing Fund. So welcome everyone. And, and again, thank you for joining us. So today we've got a big topic. We could probably spend an hour and a half or more on some of the subtopics too. Um, but what we're gonna do is just have a free flowing conversation about um, some of the big issues of uh, affordable housing. Um, I, of course, have some questions, but uh, I've encouraged our participants to have a conversation amongst themselves too and follow up on any topics too. So that said, um, a couple of other items too. Um, we, I will be watching for um, some questions too. Uh, during our conversation, of course, I have some questions here too, but use the Q&A feature and I'll be looking for some of those questions too. I've already got a couple here. Um, also too, there is the new housing task force report that's going to be released soon and we'll be talking about that too. It'll be released on September 9th and I was told this morning that we will be sharing that report with those of you who've registered too. So, um, so thank you. All right, well, I'm just going to start the conversation with a kind of a big picture question that grabs a lot of subjects. But the first question is, I wonder if we could first talk, you know, and this is the structure of our conversation today, is first maybe define the problem a little bit, uh, give the lay of the land, and then also talk about then how all these pieces fit together and talk about some solutions that could come up too. So, that's that's the general structure, and there's like I said, we could go down down the road and talk a lot of, about side subjects as well. But I'm going to throw this big one out there first. Could we could could we talk about um, the big scope of the problem? And by that I mean in two different pieces. If there's a way to quantify both the need for um, affordable housing in our area, and also Maybe about uh, some of the uh, issues around creating more housing too, uh, what the level of affordable housing is and, and that. So I'll throw that to anybody out there. If there's a way to just kind of set the table and define what we're really talking about here uh, in Minnesota. And that can go to anybody who wants to uh, jump in first. I'm, I'm happy to get the ball rolling. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's really it's some really simple facts. Uh, one is that uh, we have we have more households than we have homes in Minnesota. So it's a basic supply and demand problem. Uh, uh, people don't make enough money uh, to afford the homes that we have. And uh, it's starting to impact everything else that we do. Uh, before COVID, uh, we had 150,000 renters who made less than $50,000 a year and were paying more than 50% of their income on rent. And we have, you know, another huge number of renting households that could afford a home and actually might find a home that's more affordable, but there just aren't uh, a lot of price homes that are priced uh, uh, kind of at a level that makes it easy for people to get in. So it's a renter issue, it's a homeowner issue, it's a supply issue, and it's a wages uh, versus cost gap issue. 
I, I build on that, uh, what the commissioner said, and just harken back to the governor's housing task force report, which put some numbers to that. Um, I think the governor or the uh, commissioner uh, made it very succinct and, and uh, uh, direct, but the numbers are that um, over the next 10 years, we need 300,000 uh, more units of housing and uh, we're behind schedule on producing that housing. Uh, we're at that time, we were about 50,000 units uh, behind. We're still behind. We've gained a little ground on that, but we started out in the hole. Uh, so that's housing of all types, housing that's very affordable to the lowest income households, housing for workforce families, um, and even, even luxury production, although luxury production is probably making the, the greatest headway. It's not helping the other uh, uh, production. Another area where we have a big problem, and uh, I don't know what the fallout will be from the pandemic, but I think it's going to make it worse, and that is that we're losing a lot of our housing. Um, we're, our preservation is falling behind. We're losing more than we're producing every year. Uh, and that's true for both affordable subsidized housing, and it's also true for naturally occurring affordable or the um, older uh, affordable by because of age and condition uh, multifamily housing, which has been gobbled up and uh, converted or flipped to more upscale housing. So we have a lot of issues to address and uh, it really requires a coordinated and united effort on the part of the public private sector. I would pile on to that, Warren. Um, you made a really interesting comment for us in Rochester um, you were saying you're scrambling a bit or we're trying to catch up to this need right now. In Rochester, we've gained, I think, 30,000 people in just the last 15 years. And it's a fast pace because DMC is, you know, we're, we're generating a lot of uh, development in Rochester, which is great. And at the same time, that, of course, means more jobs in the building of um, workforce housing and affordable housing. And so we also are scrambling quite a bit. And the question that always is in our mind, my mind, and I'm sure all of yours as well, is do you, can you ever get ahead? Like, can you ever leapfrog to the future and get ahead of this issue? Because, like, I feel like we're always running on this one. We've built quite a bit of affordable housing um, and workforce housing in Rochester. We had very, very little in downtown Rochester at all. So we are catching up, to your point. Um, but that whole ability to leapfrog to the future, I'm kind of hoping somebody in one of these little squares has the answer for that. <laughs> I, I don't have, I have a, answer, but oh, I have ahead, a follow-up question um, for you. Who is, um, how is the workforce housing being financed in Rochester? Is it, is it um, employers, um, you know, 100% private sector, or is it a partnership, public-private partnership? How is that workforce housing being created? Um, there's multiple models going on in Rochester, which I'm sure we'll talk about, Joel, but mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is public-private. Um, we have learned that we've built a new coalition in Rochester, which includes Mayo Clinic, the county, the city, and our foundation, which is relatively new over the last three years. And it's for us, it's an innovative model that we're really trying to create a strategy around those dollars, of course, to grow more dollars. You know, you could, we could all eat up $4 million in about a minute. And so um, we're trying to really leverage those dollars and be really purposeful and deliberate. So 
we learned very quickly that DMC isn't the answer, Mayo Clinic isn't the answer, the county isn't the answer, we had to pull a coalition together. So it's relatively new. Um, uh, and we're finding our way, we're finding our wheels, if you will, in terms of strategy, but I feel like it's really heading in the right direction. Yeah. Well, I have an, an idea. I mean, it's probably far-fetched, but uh, I shared this with Commissioner on a call we were on a couple of weeks ago, is why can't we repeat history? Um, again, I'm, I'm a child from North Minneapolis. I grew up in North Minneapolis, raised in North Minneapolis. Uh, but growing up, I've, you know, I've seen a lot of Rambler affordable homes that were built after World War II or whenever they were built in. Uh, so why couldn't we repeat history? Why couldn't we, uh, with all of the lots that are available in Minneapolis, empty lots that are sitting out there, a lot of the homes that can be rehabbed, you know, why can't we create or why can't a program be created to build affordability homes uh, for first-time home buyers that are in the LMI income uh, area, new construction type uh, of style of homes, uh, hire uh, some developers, uh, on a base, you know, just, on, you know, kind of on a base uh, revenue perspective. Um, and, 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 and we as lenders, you know, when we're pre-qualifying or we're talking to these potential home buyers, you know, really set them up for success and, and get them to understand these are basic new construction homes. Uh, they're going to be, they're going to meet basic income levels. Uh, so you're not going to get all of the, you know, the granite countertops. You're not going to get all the fancy uh, materials in these homes. These are basic homes. But as you build equity in these homes, as you start to build wealth within these homes, you can start to add on to these homes or remodel your homes as you start to build equity. Again, I know it's kind of far-fetched, but hey, we're here to talk about ideals. <laughs> and sometimes you, you got you to gotta swing for the fences in order for somebody to, you know, somebody to listen. That's a great idea. And we are doing that in St. Paul. Uh, Jim Urchel of Dayton's Bluff Neighborhood Housing Association uh, is building uh, uh, St. Paul's um, largest um, single-family detached uh, neighborhood uh, in 40 years in the city of St. Paul, and that's called the Village on Rivoli. And exactly what you said, you know, we're not, we're not bringing to market the, um, you know, fancy countertops and, and the the fancy lighting, um, the product is um, income restricted, right? Mm -hmm. To um, promote home ownership uh, at 115% of area median. And we're doing um, infill housing on lots. Um, and we're dipping down to 80% AMI um, on those lots. So right. um, it is happening, but uh, it's hard to get money. It's hard to get any bond monies. Um, to do this work. And um, as I understand it, Jim, Jim Urchel and Dayton's Bluff Neighborhood Housing Services is the only, um, is the only nonprofit developer that's doing any large scale new construction in St. Paul right now, besides Twin Cities Habitat for Housing, of course. Just, just to provide a little context too for what you're talking about, um, if I could jump in. Um, I have some 2018 Met Council data, and just so that people know um, what we're talking about, the area median income, um, you know, some of those numbers are a little surprising to me too, I, on different levels, but just to set the base for what we're talking about too, according to these 2018 numbers, the area median income is 94,300, and that's 
um, for based on a family of four. Um, in the metro, in the metro, in the metro, in the metro area. These are metro figures, and they they differ obviously in um, outstate. Um, but with that too, the the word affordable is that's as the low income households that pay could pay with thirty percent of their income, and that's defined um, as sixty percent AMI, and so that figure uh, at sixty percent AMI is $54,200 for family of four, just to give the, just to give a base for our listeners of what that means too. And, and according to some Met Council data that I have, um, what can a household with 60% AMI afford then? Um, that would be a rental unit efficiency at $991, one bedroom at $1,062, two bedrooms at $1,273. Um, and an owner-occupied unit priced at or below $181,500. So I just thought I'd offer some of those numbers just as a base for what we're talking about here too, which, um, you know, that's, you know, to say low income, you know, is 60% AMI, that's still quite a bill too for a lot of people. But um, anyway, I did not mean to interrupt your conversation. Go go right ahead. Sorry. Morning, I was just wondering, and I was wondering if this is a no, something Colin was interested in addressing that I've been hearing from developers that there's some reticence from banks to support mixed income housing projects. And I mean, I don't know the bankers on the in the group or the developers if there was um, what you think about that statement. I can just comment on briefly, um, and I'll jump, before I do that, let me just jump back to the lay in the land question, Joel, that you asked, because yep. I think Commissioner Ho gave us some macroeconomic thoughts that I thought was really helpful, and also this mention of the governor's task force of uh, 300,000 homes needed uh, statewide um, over a 10-year period, I believe. If you took that in just metro area, um, we've looked at this with this Itasca uh, Housing Affordability Task Force. We think we need about 18,000 units a year over the next 10 years, metro area, 14 county metro area. And we've been producing in the range of 10 to 13,000. So it's about a five to 8,000 unit per year gap. I love what Trent Bowman had to say. And I'll tell you, this is one of those tests where if, you, if you're looking for the answer, it's all the above every single time, every day of the week, all year long. We need it all. And uh, I'm active with you, Trent, in North Minneapolis with Hospitality House and Urban Homeworks and uh, other stuff. And uh, I love the idea of the single family homes. I also like the duplexes. I like the quads. We're going to need a few three and four story apartment buildings. We need all the above. And then to get back to your question to me, Lisa, as a developer, the, the harsh answer right now, given the COVID recession that we're dealing with, it doesn't matter what category you're talking about for commercial lending, it's a lot harder right now than it was six and nine months ago. And yes, those that include mixes of uses, including a percentage of affordable, makes it more complicated and makes it harder for the underwriting. So uh, yeah, that's a challenge. And I, I think generally, upper Midwest and Minnesota, we have lenders that truly care about trying to help our communities with increasing affordable housing, but it's the, the underwriting requirements and part of it's imposed on federal government lending standards and ratios, it's hard. I mean, and, it, and it's, it's harder now than it was 10 years ago. 
it's harder now because of COVID than it was six or nine months ago. The fact of the matter is that um, anytime we're trying to build affordable housing, and I mean affordable to households at say even 100% of median income or 80 or 60% below, especially in the multifamily category, we're really talking about subsidy. And Minnesota has been blessed by having a really strong housing finance agency and a bipartisan, or I, I, I would say a nonpartisan approach at the legislature. Uh, for the most part anyway, uh, to affordable housing funding, bonding and, and even policy uh, breakthrough uh, work. And um, so we need to keep that bipartisan understanding very, very much in focus for uh, our legislators, our elected officials, because it will take a lot of political will to address the housing need, the gap for the lower income households, multifamily, single family, they all require some subsidy, whether it's twenty-five thousand or a hundred thousand per unit. It adds up really quick. Uh, it's it's our state's infrastructure, so it's really essential that we do this, um, and it's essential that we we keep the uh, the bipartisan nature of our uh, uh, legislative support, our state support, really really strong. Uh, so I, I, I don't mean to bring in the legislature or the politics of the moment, but I, I do think that it, uh, we, we can't get there without, uh, without that public subsidy. Uh, let's let's so. talk about that right, right off the bat then. I'll direct this question to Commissioner Ho then. Um, you mentioned bonding and there's you know, a bonding bill that's been up. Um, nothing's been done with it, but I know your agency is made a pitch for 260 million um, that includes um, 60 million for public housing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that bonding bill's impact on affordable housing um, specifically? Um, well, I mean, I think, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Warren alluded to the politics of the moment. I think the sad news is there is not a bonding bill right now mm -hmm. and we should have had a bonding bill. This was a bonding year and it's really hard to imagine that back in February, uh, it could have been as high as 500 million. Um, and, and right now uh, we're sitting at zero um, and we're, uh, we're heading towards an election where the odds of getting something done seem to be looking worse as opposed to looking better. And, and I just think that's a shame. Um, the, the bonding is a great uh, tool for accessing low cost capital to do uh, these types of investments. And the housing infrastructure bonds that Minnesota uniquely has created allows us to put gap financing into deals to really bring the rents down um, and, and make it affordable. And um, public housing preservation, uh, you know, this is a place where, uh, where Congress should step up, but, but they really have not for a long time. And a lot of that housing stock just needs to uh, be up to date in terms of everything from safety features to energy efficiency to quality of life. We've got a lot of, uh, of, of, of aging seniors living in that public housing stock that, uh, you know, if the elevator goes out, you know, I mean, that's, um, that's life and death right there. So I, you know, I, last session, we were able to get the largest um, housing uh, appropriation package and a one-time 60 million housing infrastructure bond deal 
And it was a very nonpartisan conversation about the fact that we just need more housing all over the state. You know, I think it's an election year. Uh, I think there's the politics of the coronavirus that made things particularly complicated in the legislative session. I think the most important thing for people um, in the business community, regular citizens, people in local government, uh, you know, uh, school teachers and, and, and bus drivers and, 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 and police officers and postal workers to do is to let their local officials know that if we don't get housing right, it impacts everything else. And I think nothing has exposed that more um, than this pandemic. And uh, when we told people to stay at home and a lot more people lost their jobs, um, it made an already uh, tenuous housing system in this state that much more tenuous. And you know, we're talking about a report from 2018 uh, the previous governor's task force and those numbers and those gaps. But now we're just seeing, you know, the, the, the situation gets so much worse and we're seeing the impacts of it. We're seeing the impact on it in terms of distance learning for kids who are supposed to be going back to school. But if you don't have a housing environment that's stable, you don't have access to high-speed internet, um, you know, there's just so many disparities that this virus is uh, exposing for folks who maybe could have been distracted and not having to then paid attention to it before. And so, you know, I'm painfully aware of the fact that uh, with the exception of, of Trent, who might be at work, <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the rest of us are all talking to you. Uh, see, and you might have a file cabinet in your living room. But I, <laughs> you're at the office. I have on shoes. I know that Sienna and Trent are two of the hardest working people in in uh, in home ownership and community development work. So it doesn't surprise me. I'm at home and you're in your office. But it's but it also really is exposing the fact that when we're being asked to work from home, stay from home, you know, if our homes are crowded, if we can't pay the bills, if uh, we couldn't afford it before and somebody in the family has has lost income you know so so i think like like yeah trent we gotta we gotta swing for the fence i don't play baseball but i think i got that right mm -hmm, i um mm -hmm. I, I just watched uh, the last dance so we gotta be willing to take that long shot right mm -hmm. and, um uh but but we had to do that before COVID. yeah and and now we've just got kind of the you know the politics of an election year and and all of that like like as we walk into 2021, we need a strong, united front that reflects all the sectors that just says we need to get ahead of this now or Minnesota is gonna fall further and further and further behind. And when it comes to racial inequity in our housing market, we already sit, sit at the bottom right. or near the bottom. And so I just think that we have to use this moment as an opportunity to to really understand that we've got to be all in on this when we come into 2021, uh, because uh, we started out in a bad place. Um, we didn't make progress this year. That impacts development for the next few years, you know. And it's just, you know, the behinder you are, the behinder you get. And I just want to add on to something too, you know, to you know, to maximize the dollars uh, used, you know, within the relationships, we should be using developers, uh, contractors. Um, you know, contractors of color, you know, we, we need to use some of our entities that are out there uh, that are helping training uh, people who could build homes or do new construction, like, you know, programs that the Summit Academy offers. 
Um, we need to do more training um, on the lending side. You know, uh, I'm a, a big proponent on one-on-one -on -one consultations uh, with potential first-time home buyers. Credit um, is a huge is a huge challenge uh, for potential first-time home buyers. Uh, we really need to be talking to you know because you know when I'm reading articles uh, of, for home ownership for minorities or African Americans, you know, here today we're at 24 percent. Mm -hmm. I've been in this business for 24 years, and guess what? 24 years ago, we were at 21%. So, is the needle? I mean, somewhere in that is somewhere in that percentage. I don't know if that's the exact number, but it was somewhere in the in that uh, figure. So, we have not moved the needle, um, and so how are we going to move the needle? So, you know, I think education, uh, hire, hiring or having developers of color to help build new construction, uh, affordable new construction homes. And, and the banks, you know, uh, are also, we also have to be more involved. Oh, I, let me rephrase, banks are involved because banks do offer first time home buying products that are available uh, and are reasonable for potential first time, first time home buyers. But we have to do more education. We have to sit down with our potential home buyers and show them what, not show them, but make suggestions and talk to them about what is the best product and program that's gonna best meet their needs. You know, I use a saying all the time, is your dream home is the home you can afford. Let's put people in dream homes they can afford and let's stop trying to put people in homes they can't afford. Um, and maybe we can talk about this a little later, yeah. but we're gonna have to call out some of the, the real estate uh, agencies because mm -hmm. lenders and uh, other programs, we're always on, um, we're always being uh, tasked or we're always on the radar, but no one's talking about the agents. You know, Nobody's talking about agents showing people homes more than what people can afford, the highest and best offers. Uh, things that are in purchase agreements. You know, is this, are you getting down payment assistance? Um, are you getting, uh, what type of financing are you getting? Are, are you FHA versus conventional? Love letters. These are all, all types of things we can start opening up and start discussing. Uh, but I'll, 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 I'll no. here. That's, <laughs> that's why I said we could go for a long time. That's great. We need more, we need more black and brown mortgage underwriters people mm -hmm. who are making those decisions. And that revealed itself with the 2008 financial crisis where m many black and brown people were put into higher cost mortgages. So that, no, sometimes. That right out of the, the underwriter, the underwriter uh, process. Yeah. I'm interested in something uh, Commissioner Ho said that the pandemic has created heightened awareness and um, there's an opportunity there. I mean, I sound a little Pollyanna here, but there is an opportunity here. We've seen it in Rochester, uh, the heightened awareness and the keen awareness now about the housing issues. And it does feel like, Trent, all of the, the things that you were talking about in terms of education and everything, it does feel like the time is now. I'm sure we've been saying that for years. But if we're going to, you know, they say don't let any good crisis go to waste. Well, I do believe that the pandemic, there's an opportunity for us to really create this awareness. And then on top of that, I feel like pace can be a barrier because all of the things we've been talking about so far are collaborative efforts. And we all know collaborative, collaborative efforts take a long time to pull off well. So I feel like we're kind of running two tracks, like collaborate as best we can. And at the same time, um, jump on the train I probably mixed a whole bunch of things wrong no. there. 
jump on the train while it's going because we don't want to miss this opportunity as well. Again, I don't have the answer, but I think there's just a there's a time, and the time could be right now for us. You know, that, that is a good question, and I had a question that was similar, very similar to that. So I'm just going to get mine out of the way too to build on that. But what I I kind of had that too. Um, the thought for meeting immediate need and preserving what affordable housing that we have now, but also then looking long term and getting some of these projects that take a while to to get built to get those on track too how do you how do we balance that need to preserve what housing we have now and also to address immediate needs to increase this home ownership uh, that Trent was talking about or just to find you know to meet the demand that's there right now but also then balance that with our need to have long term projects being developed for what we see coming down the road um, mm -hmm. any I, I can comment on that because mm -hmm. Uh, on the east side of St. Paul, we have three major opportunities um, for development. And the first one is the Hillcrest Golf Course site, which is in pre-development right now. Um, the other one is the boys, the, old, the former Boys Totem Town site. And then a third is um, uh, in, the, in the pipeline, the uh, Battle Creek Golf Course. So we, we have that, we're talking, you know, the possibility of thousands of units of housing uh, between those three. And those are only here just on the east side of St. Paul. Mm -hmm. Well, Colin, you're involved in the, in the Ford, uh, Ford plant redevelopment, right? Yeah. Correct. Yes. And, and I think that's a really good point because um, to me, go back to what I said earlier, I don't mean to be trite or simplistic, but it really is all the above. And for us to, begin to make progress against these challenges we have, these gaps of lack of production. We have to have large land areas where we can do multiple units and a wide variety of housing types. So we can have single family homes, we can have duplexes, quads, three-story affordable apartments, et cetera. Um, we're just not gonna get there without uh, government entities, cities, counties embracing the land areas that they control and saying we have to put forth the grand vision like I give St. Paul credit for, like what they did with the Ford site, now Highland Bridge, renamed. Um, it's that kind of scale of thinking we're going to have to implement to be even close to hitting these numbers that are producing an annual deficit, basically, for us of demand with affordable housing. I think that also means that neighbors need to embrace density. I, um, you know, I watched the, um, the redevelopment of the old warehouse at Franklin and 280 uh, create a new neighborhood, uh, you know, here. And, and I just think that, that we just have to think about how density solves so many problems around transportation and uh, climate change. And uh, there's just so many things that, that density helps with. And yet for folks who have lived in historically... Um, uh, you know, we're almost partitioned single-family home neighborhoods. Uh, you know, the, the 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 beneficiary communities of redlining. You know that that when there's opportunities to really net, not just you know ten units or forty units or a hundred units, but thousands of new units, we have to embrace that. And and I really appreciate that these redevelopment opportunities don't come along, you know, all the time. And um, you know, and, and, and God forbid that, 
other people did what I did, which is pull out my dusty golf clubs and, and, and golf more. And then suddenly <laughs> these golf courses aren't available. But I, cause I just think that the, this, this land use stuff and density and, and embracing communities that are, that are uh, mixed income and more integrated and the benefit of that to our whole community and to our kids and our schools and our businesses and employers. I just, uh, we, we need to get ourselves all the way there. And I just, I'm just gonna say it. I, I think sometimes uh, people who uh, profess progressive politics uh, suddenly become uh, very, very conservative when it comes to uh, what happens uh, in the community around them. And I think we need to do some soul searching around that. And I think we yeah. need to say it out loud. No, I agree. One person, one viewer kind of anticipated your thoughts on density, but they were wondering, will this COVID crisis though, pressure on the system for people to step away from density. Um, do you have any views on that, Commissioner? Uh, um, <laughs> I, I have I so many. I'm filter, 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 filter. <laughs> I, um, the, uh, I think that the vaccine is going to uh, change how we think about some of this stuff. I, I think that we can't all move out into the middle of the farm field. And if we all move out into the middle of the farm field, uh, we need to pay attention to the politics of the virus and the different types of risks that are exposed in places that think that distance protects them from having to take some of the protective measures like masking up. And so I, uh, I just think that, uh, that, I mean, there are a couple of ways that we can come through this. We can come through this by growing further apart and, 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 and isolating more um, or we can get through this by working together. And I think that, um, I just, I mean, I just watched, yesterday uh, we launched in partnership with a, a, a ton of folks, the new um, COVID-19 housing assistance program. And we broke land speed records for state government to do that. The governor announced that we got $100 million on July 14th. And yesterday was August 24th and the program went live. If you need help with housing assistance, uh, call 211, 211unitedway.org. Um, just my little quick pitch for that. But once upon a time, Lisa, to your point, as state government, we would not have even imagined doing something that fast. Totally agree. And, yeah. and it, took, it took us, United Way 211, uh, Housing Link, 44 uh, local grant administrators and their staff um, you know, people basically giving up their summer to, uh, to write applications and write contracts and uh, develop online, online software because we know that people need this money so badly. That's coming together for Minnesotans. I, um, so I just think that, that, that we just need to appreciate that, that we're all in this together and, and that being courageous in the housing conversations um, is really important right now. I'd like to add on something that Commissioner just said. We are all in this together. We, we, we say community, we use the word community every day in conversations, but yet and still, we are not a community when it comes to home ownership. Everyone, regardless of what race, creed, color, background, whatever, has a right to own a home. And we have to start making that possible. We have a right to own a home. Nobody should be able to decide what neighborhood I can live in, 
what neighborhood my cousin can live in. No one, no, no loan officer, no real estate agent. I should be able to decide where I want to live. And if we're going to start talking about community and we're all in this, just to, you know, just to try to you know, add on what commissioner is saying, then if we're going to be all in it, let's be all in it. There was a gentleman um, who was on this call, and I, I always remember one of the things he always says. He lived in a neighborhood in North Minneapolis, and he would go out, cut his grass, um, and flower, do his flowers, his gardening, whatever, and it got contagious. And all of his other neighbors started coming out, cutting their grass, and making sure their grass is green. That's contagious. Who wants to be the, who wants to be the house on the block with the long weed grass? Everybody wants to live in a community, in an environment that they can feel safe, that they can, that they, that they can call the neighborhood a family. So if we're going to use community, well, let's use it right. And community is about one. It's about everybody being together. It's about everyone having the right to live wherever they want to live. We all know about the covenants. We yeah. all know about redlining. It was happening. And there's still some systemic racism going on today in this market. And it just has to stop. And until we as individuals look in the mirror and start facing and start answering our prejudices that we have amongst each other, we're never going to get into that community environment. We're never going to be able to look across the street and see an Asian brother or an Asian sister or look to my right to my my African-American brother and sister or look behind me and look and see my Native American brother and sister. It's all about community. So if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about we're all in it together, let's stop talking about it and let's start acting acting on it. And that includes all of us in this community, yeah. all of us in this business, the real estate business, the lending business, the banking business, et cetera, et cetera. I, I totally agree. I saw that uh, commissioner of the Department of Housing in the city of Chicago, uh, Marissa Novara, she put out on social media an article that was in the Boston Globe. Um, just last week, but just on that very subject, um, the headline of the article was, you know, it's it's one thing to rally against racism, but will white people finally make it feasible for many more minorities to move into their neighborhoods? And I, that's a really good article, and and she put that out there on social media too. So that's the. I, truth. I'm watching it now <laughs> here in my neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. On the side, a um, high density uh, rental unit is, is um, going to be built and we I'm, we are experiencing white flight uh, you know, people people are concerned that their market values are going to drop and so they're selling now to get out uh, before that high density um, rental unit even breaks ground yeah those discussions are really tough um, Commissioner Ho, you were mentioning the density issue and how can we overcome some of this. And in Rochester, we had not so long ago a big zoning change and those were really, really intense conversations to shift mindset and to try to get people to understand the value of what that does to land and what it does to the density of a community. And um, boy, you know, the just trying to make that shift in a small community, I mean, we're 20, 000 now relatively small compared to some of yours it's a it's a it's a big feat to start to shift that and again back to the comment I made earlier about pace it doesn't happen overnight but it's it's very deliberate that we all need to be 
um, participating in those conversations for sure. Yeah. This is also a statewide issue, uh, the NIMBY issue for sure, and, and density to some degree, I think. Um, I can't tell you how many times over the last uh, several few decades anyway, where uh, uh, an affordable housing development, usually a, sometimes it's, it was a single family development, a few homes, but most often multifamily was opposed even by elected officials, even with the appropriate entitlements already in place where roadblocks were put in place, but also oftentimes neighbors, more often than not, it's, it's uh, people who are um, ill-informed, misinformed, or just uh, 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 biased, and and uh, and it takes a, a lot of effort at the local level. It takes brave leadership from the elected officials, sometimes from the faith community, sometimes from a group like Housing Justice Center, a nonprofit that will kind of intervene and fight on behalf of uh, of a, a affordable housing development. So um, that's density and affordable housing. Uh, kind of mixed in um, throughout the state where there is opposition. Joel, I just want to I just want to acknowledge that we're doing this in this Zoom format, but I've got my chat window open, and there's just a lot of great allies yeah. of housing uh, that are out there. So I just want to say, hey, thanks, and thanks for <laughs> for sending some words over. Yes. It's good to see your words, if not your face. Exactly. I wanted to share a. Um, this is maybe a, a, a good moment to just share something that was done <clears throat> that was quite innovative in Rochester. And I know Lisa is probably aware of it, but it didn't have a direct government or even a philanthropic uh, involvement. Um, and it was a high density project. It was called, uh, it's, it's being built. It's, it, it's actually phase one is built. It's being leased up right now. Uh, it's 164 units of rental prop mixed income rental property. Now the key word, a key thing here is mixed income. So you have low income, you have moderate income, and you have market rate. And uh, this 164 units uh, is built on industrial land. <laughs> it was land that was originally zoned for industry. It wasn't entirely embraced warmly by local elected officials, but it was it was okay. And the real uh, advance here was the units were built at $120,000 per door. And I'm interested in what Colin sees in the, you know, industry, uh, but that is an unheard of cost per door. Uh, a lot of value engineering, we were, we worked with the developer real estate equities and stencil group. We'd like to replicate this in greater Minnesota. It can't be replicated everywhere because of uh, regulatory rules on the uh, use of land. Uh, in zoning uh, uh, requirements, but um, that's roughly half of the cost of building an apartment in most environments. And so one of the things that I think we need to look at is how can we do things to reduce cost? There's a lot of ideas about manufactured, modular, you know, uh, housing. Uh, Rise Modular in Owatonna has built a forget how many $60 million plant, a really big uh, manufactured housing plant with the goal of reducing costs of manufactured homes. Uh, there's the kind of uh, smart design that Tech Park Apartments in Rochester employed to get that cost down to $120,000 per unit. There was some cross subsidy. There was some cheap money involved, not subsidy, 
but low-cost first mortgage money and low-cost equity on the part of uh, Greater Minnesota Housing Fund. So you put all these pieces together uh, and you can deliver uh, affordability uh, in ways that don't uh, require as much public subsidy and maybe in some cases no public subsidy. But I'm curious what Colin and what you might be seeing in the industry in terms of you know, the uh, kind of latest and greatest uh, creative approaches to building uh, housing at a very efficient cost. That's a massive challenge. Uh, our company has a national footprint. We're, head, we're headquartered in Minneapolis, uh, Twin Cities area, but we're building uh, market rate apartments, senior living, and affordable housing product literally coast to coast. And I can tell you even with the COVID uh, recession going on where we expected material pricing and other things to drive costs down, um, it, it's, it's a challenge to deliver these projects uh, with costs that are truly affordable to hit the rent targets you know, across the wide range of the income levels. And uh, we're investing significantly as a company right now in research around modular. Um, we haven't pulled the 100% trigger on a given project just yet. Uh, we know that our industry is going that way. It's obvious that it will, especially for residential, where you have replicable design concepts and stackable units, things like that. Um, I, I can go into a wide variety of challenges and concerns that are out there with why it's so hard to do it and why the U.S. construction industry has not embraced it and deployed it as fast as other countries around the world. But I think for the state of Minnesota, for the challenges we're talking about today, we, we absolutely have to kind of uh, remake the delivery process. And I think it means everybody coming to the table to drive costs down. It's it's architects, it's builders, it's it's city structures with impact fees and park dedication fees. It's um, other, other government entities because uh, the reality is construction historically keeps going up, just cost of materials, cost of labor, and we can't let that reality cause us not to be able to deliver affordable housing to match the demand that we need within our region. So now we were talking about is a, to me, a multi-week seminar unto itself. It's a major, major challenge. I think we have some pretty strong players in Minnesota that can help us get there. But um, I think we have some catching up to do relative to the rest of the world. Thanks yeah, for uh, mentioning oh. modular because the next stage, yeah. the village on Rivoli, is all modular and it will have solar. Okay. I'd like to follow up on that a little bit on both of, of that specific development and modular, but also on some items that Colin said. You know, we have some questions around this too, but um, is that basically what keeps the private market from delivering to meeting all of this demand? Is it just the continuing rising? costs of construction that keep builders from meeting the demand that's out there or are there other things too? I think probably the two biggest things is availability of sites where they can do it at scale and that's what Sean Thomas was talking about. Yeah. The great opportunities they have in St. Paul with these larger land areas where you can do multi-phase projects but generally in our metropolitan area, Minneapolis-St. Paul, 14 County Metro, uh, land availability that's zoned right where you can do affordable housing is very challenging. So to me, that's the, the biggest barrier. The second biggest is the local politics. And it's what Commissioner Hall was talking about. It doesn't matter which political persuasion you are, the 
uh, not in my backyard attitude for affordable housing solutions, which I think are really well done in general in our state, um, is is there. And that's an attitude that we absolutely have to overcome. Um, and it's part of what I love the words that I heard from Commissioner Ho of, and we can go through this a couple of ways. We can cloister and separate and isolate, or we can come together. And for us to succeed in overcoming these challenges, I think state of Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area, we have to come together uh, to conquer it and to win. You know, I, I do want to reemphasize the point, I think, uh, that, that Warren and Lisa made as well. This really is a statewide issue. Uh, last Wednesday, it's one of the first times that they let me out of the house uh, to do work. I uh, got an opportunity to go up to Long Prairie, Minnesota. It's a, it's a two hour and five minute drive uh, out past St. Cloud. And it's a community of 3,500 people. And uh, DW Jones uh, had put together a, a workforce housing deal there. Uh, they were gonna create, a, oh, a, sorry, Skip, 37 units, I, I think, of housing. Uh, efficiencies one, two, and three bedroom uh, rental. Uh, they got the land calling for $90,000. I, um, and it's, um, it's got the backing of the city of Long Prairie, uh, tax increment financing. It's got tax abatement. Uh, Todd County is, is in there, but so are the, the egg poultry and meat packing industries in there. And so partly state appropriation, right. To help buy down the cost of the project. Um, partly uh, grants, partly the tax deals, uh, and the, the corporate uh, player heard what Skip was gonna pay on mortgage on his, on his uh, interest rate, and the employer said, we can lend you the money for less. And so that is a lot of people coming together to make units happen in this community, 3,500 people, um, and in a workforce that is increasingly diverse. That's an ideal example. That's a yeah, great example. It's a beautiful example. That's why they let me drive up to Long Ferry last week to go celebrate <laughs> that. But, but, but I think that's why the business community is so important in this conversation. Because when, when, when business appreciates that its lowest cost workers um, needs to have a stable place to call home and gets involved. I mean, this is the conversation, Colin, that, that, that you have been leading uh, within Itasca. Like how, how does business step into this space? And how does business help influence how elected officials appear in this space? And, you know, Lisa, uh, I was down in Rochester, let's just go with a hundred years ago, cause that's what it felt like in a room crowded full of people that were all working together on destination medical center housing issues. Yeah, that was inspiring. It was inspiring and similar conversations um, up in Duluth and, you know, up in Roseau and Thief River Falls, this is a statewide issue. And, mm -hmm. and business might just have the ability to see um, over the heads of the politics and lead by example and, and help promote this idea of community because there is nobody who lives in Long Prairie that wants to see those industries go away because they can't find employees that can work there or, or that have to drive, you know, you know, they run buses from St. Cloud to get their employees there. And they know that that means that it's just a different job opportunity away for that employee to leave that, that, that company. And so I just really think that business has a, a unique way of stepping into the space that truly would be nonpartisan. Um, this is just, this is, you know, more housing that people can afford 
is good for business. And, um, and the workforce of tomorrow uh, is going to look different than the workforce of 50 years ago in Minnesota. And we need to embrace that. And we need to you know, use that to build integrated communities, both from an income and a race and ethnicity perspective. Yeah. You know, you know Joel, one thing that the one thing we did in Rochester, which perhaps your communities are doing this as well, but we've decided because there's so much development happening in Rochester and we need to make sure that we continue to focus on housing and affordable housing in particular. We've decided that the projects that we are building right now in Rochester, 5% um, of the tax increment financing um, will go, the, the increment that we get off of TIF will go into a bucket, if you will, to support affordable housing in the whole community. So now we've developed, and this we are finally now being able to uh, use those dollars. So we developed at least some dollars that are dedicated directly to affordable housing that really is off the backs of some of the other projects that we're doing. Because in Rochester, we're doing a lot of different projects, whether it's hotels, um, restaurants, bioscience, life science, you name it, we're doing it. And so let's take advantage of those that opportunity of building and developing and use it to to at least put some dollars away for this particular issue which means in rochester it is a it's a priority area for us i mean that in itself sends a message to the business community to say this is a priority because we're all in on this one i mean it's just one example well that took a that the took other a thing we've done I just on the part of your elected to get that done and uh, and hands off to the city council and the mayor of Rochester. Also, Olmstead County Board uh, created uh, not that long ago, uh, for them anyway, a first time ever levy. That's probably about five, six years ago on that. And they've incrementally uh, increased their levy uh, uh, capacity there and are raising money for their affordable production. I think rental assistance is one of the things that they're using the money for, which today rental assistance is probably the most critical need. Uh, and and uh, hats off to the governor and the commissioner for that hundred million dollars, which is now going out the door. That's a real win-win for both the tenants and those that might be homeless or evicted, but also the, the property owners, the landlords who are now uh, going to benefit from a more stable rental income uh, like they sh like they should like in normal times so that their properties are safe and uh, secure so uh, yeah that took a lot of political will in the Rochester and Olmstead County area yeah the county has been amazing in this space definitely what role to change direction just a little bit but what role can businesses do to help this um, this affordable housing crisis that we're in, um, you know, through education, through maybe benefits, maybe home loan assistance, or what role can businesses play themselves in helping this crisis? I want to jump in on that. Uh, at, you know, speaking for Greater Minnesota Housing Fund and a real statewide legacy of work that uh, employers have been involved in for 25 years or more, probably. Um, and that is that uh, we have inventoried and sometimes been a party to 
what we call employer-assisted housing, but uh, the commissioner pointed out that in Long Prairie, I think that the uh, corporation or the employer uh, contributed loaned money to the project at a very affordable rate. Perfect, perfect example of what an employer could do. That's an exceptional thing, however, for an employer to be willing to do that. Um, but over the past 20 years or so, employers in Minnesota have contributed over $20 million to affordable housing developments. And in greater Minnesota, that's primarily been in their hometown. So Mayo Clinic has been enormously generous and uh, proactive on that. Hormel, Jenny O, uh, Polaris, uh, Digikey, a lot of employers have really stepped up um, and it's been, you know, inconsistent. You, you, you see it really happen during certain economic times and then you see it kind of not happen when they need employees, when employers need employees. And I'm really painting a picture in greater Minnesota. That's when they come to the table. That's when um, it's really front of mind. Uh, Destination Medical Center is probably ground zero in the whole state for the need for workforce housing and how an employer, employers, plural, uh, can step up. But there's a whole rainbow of uh, ways that they can be involved. They can provide land, they can provide down payment assistance, they can provide, um, they can buy the tax credits uh, and make an equity investment. Um, they can own the housing. We even had one employer in Winnebago, Minnesota, uh, build uh, I think it was eight units of townhomes for their employees. We've had uh, school districts contribute money uh, for teachers, uh, housing for their teachers in War Road, Minnesota. <laughs> so there's a lot of small examples, a lot of, you know, kind of dramatic, uh, uh, awesome uh, examples of that. But there is quite a quite a, a, a variety of ways employers can. Now, the one thing that employers can really do today is they can add their voice to this cause or this need, uh, uh, this call for more housing production and more um, support uh, from, from state government and, and even their local government. I've seen uh, the NIMBY conversation completely reversed because the employer said, wait a minute, we need that housing for our employees. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the residents kind of get it. Suddenly it comes into sharper focus what, what really is at stake. It's their economy. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of ways employers can be involved. Yeah. I have a question. So um, uh, great work, Warren. Um, a lot of those programs, are they for people outside of Minnesota, like relocation programs? Or are these programs for individuals that are, are residents of Minnesota living in Minnesota, and then the employers step up to help those individuals in, in the greater area? Of well, I, I, let me answer it this way. So one way that this kind of uh, issue kind of has played out in Minnesota, and this is different from anywhere else in the United States, across the country, uh, Fannie Mae and others have really promoted uh, employer-assisted housing as kind of a little bit of a brand idea. And it's often been uh, um, adopted by employers as a method to help their employees only, only their employees. Mm -hmm. And now in Minnesota, every time I ask employers to come to the table because of a, a um, project in Marshall, Minnesota uh, or another city, 
we said, do you want this to be available, these, these funds, for example, the funds the employer's putting in or the housing itself, do you want it to be available just for your employees? And without exception, every employer in Minnesota has said, no, we want it to be available for the community. We know some of our employees will live there, but it is good for the community. It's good for the, uh, all the employers in our community and whether every employer chipped in or not. Um, but to your question directly, I don't, I don't think anybody's really distinguished like it, it shall or shall, I don't even know if you could do this, <laughs> fair help. But uh, you know, whether it shall or shall not be available to uh, uh, people from out of state or just from Minnesota or just from that community, I don't think that's really ever factored in. It's really just in fair housing, the property's for lease, and you can rent it. Uh, Right. You know, no, because no, a lot of employers have good relocation programs. So that's why oh, I, I see. Yeah, that, that yeah. could be another vehicle or another way to kind of attract workforce. workforce. The, other, the other thing we could do, too, or with, which is a suggestion, is, you know, employers. And I know there's a lot of employers um, or businesses that really want to work in, work in the communities. So maybe we can create, you know, we can create some partnerships with professionals of color. Uh, we can work with some of the nonprofit organizations uh, within the communities um, as far as, you know, job training, uh, financial literacy. I mean, you know, we we offer a financial financial literacy program here at Old National Bank. I know other banks probably have a financial literacy program. Uh, there are the nonprofit partners uh, who offer uh, uh, ownership programs uh, like PPL, PRG, Minneapolis Urban League, NIDA. You know, there's a lot of resources out there where the where the businesses or uh, organizations can partner with these entities. There are affinity yep. groups, you know, out here. NARAB, which I happen to be the local chapter president. I think I'm going to plug that in there. <laughs> uh, there's ARIA, there's NARAP. You know, there's a lot of affinity groups that we are all committed to this work, you know, in home ownership and dispelling these crises and, 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 and trying to help resolve some of the challenges, you know, that we face out here in the communities. But I really believe the businesses, uh, if they're, if they're, I'm sure some of them are doing it, but even if some would even just, if we could just uh, take it to another level and start partnering with some of the organizations that are out here, um, I think that would be awesome. You build on that a little bit, Trent. Is there any barriers to that, or is there something that needs to change so that these groups can come together maybe more easily? Or um... well, yeah, uh, the only barrier is the barriers that we that we make that we create. You know, the the opportunity is wide open. We just got to get in the game and let's do it. You know, like I said, as the you know as the local uh, president chapter for NARAP. You know, we have, you know, we have um, a, a thing called 2 million homes of people of color in five years, you know, but how do we get 2 million people of color in homes in the next five years? You know, well, we need, we need our, we need our partners out here in the industry uh, to come help and support education. Education is key. Helping uh, people with the credit, you know, let's really talk about credit. You know, what, you know, you know, a credit score, does everyone really know you know, the, the value of a credit score, uh, a high credit score versus a low credit score, and what it, it, and how many products uh, that you can that you can have uh, offered to you if you have a higher credit score. You know, if you've got a 750 credit score, you could probably qualify for all the products. But if we don't have that education, 
if we're not educating our clients and we're not talking to our clients about that, then you know, it just it, it just goes on deaf ears. So to, to keep expanding, we just got to get everybody involved, and we got to keep our nonprofit partners involved, and we got to keep our um, our lending uh, 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 folks, professionals uh, involved, and we just really got to get more educated and educate our first-time home buyers on credit and products. You know, Minnesota is really blessed in that area too, and I, uh, Minnesota Housing has a tremendous network of home ownership education and training organizations statewide. Uh, and I know that the agency doubled down recently on minority uh, households of color, uh, the, the home ownership disparity um, issue, and more organizations are uh, connected with resources uh, for those, uh, uh, for the training and education that you talk about. And then the Home Ownership Center of Minnesota has a national, national product, a program, a platform, a tech, uh, uh, online platform called Frameworks, which allows, this is so important right now during the pandemic, allows people um, to uh, get their home buyer education training online and get certified to get access then to some of the down payment assistance monies. But the commissioner can probably speak more about that. It's been really a fantastic uh, network over time. But uh, if it if it's not inter uh, interconnected uh, with all of the emerging uh, efforts, then it, it, it we can always do better. Well, that's that's what it's all. Oh, that's what it's all about, Warren. It's you know it is the home ownership. You know, bringing the home ownership center, Minnesota House. Like I said, I've worked with uh, commissioners, a lot of commissioner holds employees and staff, you know, on, on, on these same subjects. There's the Homeownership Alliance Group. There's a lot of affinity groups out here that are discussing these, you know, these uh, educational classes. Now, Frameworks is a good course. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying Frameworks is not, uh, but it, and I know we have to do it in the pandemics, but there, you got to keep in mind the uh, first-time homebuyers, there's a lot of people who fear that you know, that online uh, teaching, you know, that, that, that computer teaching. And sometimes, you know, before the pandemic hit, you know, we were doing the home ownership classes, the first time home buyer classes in person and having that one-on-one -on -one relationship. And, you know, I, I just believe that one-on-one -on -one relationship goes over more strongly because I think people can ask the questions in front of you. You know, you can really yes. kind of guide them uh, a little stronger uh, based on programs that they can qualify for. Frameworks is awesome. I mean, it's it's a good it's a good program. Uh, but we're we're finding um, that some of, especially in in the, in the community, uh, that some of the chapters, a lot of folks aren't, you know, they're not doing as well in some of those chapters, you know, because they just don't understand it. They don't have that one-on-one -on -one consultation uh, to be able to discuss some of the chapters uh, that they're that they're looking at. I, I mean, you know, on the other side of this equation is jobs. You know. Too many people, especially uh, people of color, um, aren't earning a living wage. You know, we could have a bundle of resources, uh, really good resources that go deep, but if folks aren't earning enough money, uh, a living wage, uh, to participate in home ownership, um, we we also have to be. That has to be a, a critical part of the conversation as well. Yes. Yeah, we're going to really close this homeownership gap. Mm -hmm. Warren, 
wherever he went. Did he leave? No, I'm here. I pulled up some videos oh. for you. Oh, there you are. Uh, Warren, I um, was wondering about the, the two populations also that were really uh, seem to be front and center for us, at least in Rochester, our senior population. Um, you know, either trying to keep seniors in their own home and aging in home or providing housing for that. It seems like a really big opportunity or a big gap. Um, and then also mental illness. We're dealing a lot with a lot of, we just built a mental illness um, support, some support housing for mental illness in Rochester. It was a 30 unit um, place yeah that that also has on-site case management because all of these things get packaged together when you need to build like that but those are two populations i don't know if you all are experiencing interest and or gaps in those as well we are you know we, we held a series of community conversations last year um and one of the emergent themes was uh we have a lot of um people who are, are aging in place that would love to be able to go into assisted living, um, but they can't afford it, right? Or they can't fathom spending their, their nest egg on that. And we have a lot of young people that would love to get into those bread and butter first time homes. So we have this gap in the marketplace um, in, in that yeah. sector. And we heard from uh, the low wage um, labor unions that um, housing security is their absolute number one concern. Low, the low wage unions, housing security is their number one concern. You, you mentioned jobs too, and with this COVID crisis too, it seems that uh, a lot of the lower income jobs are being affected, uh, sent home. Do we, do you worry, maybe this is for you, Commissioner Ho, too, but anyone, um, do you worry about an eviction crisis coming up soon um, due to this yes. pandemic? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I knew that I answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean I, I'll say it's a national story uh, right now, and partly it's because we have a patchwork of protections. The federal protections went away, and Congress hasn't extended them. Um, uh, you might see, um, uh, HUD and, 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 and Fannie, Freddie, and others do more, but it's uncertain. And then state by state, you had governors uh, uh, have uh, executive orders to suspend evictions, uh, but some of those have gone away. And in the places that they've gone away, um, we have seen evictions stack up really fast. I think in Minnesota that we're lucky. Um, I'll give a plug to my boss, uh, bosses, Governor Walls and, and Lieutenant Governor Flanagan, you have held on to uh, the evictions executive order and put this $100 million out. You know, we absolutely need to help folks get back on their feet before we pull the rug out from underneath them. Um, it, given the fact that this has been so widespread and we know that the loss of income has impacted the black and African-American community uh, more than other communities, communities of color more. It's been this fascinating conversation about who are essential workers. And I, uh, sorry, I, I, my technology failed me for a moment. So I, I lost one of the transitions in the conversation, but you know, one of the things that, 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 that Colin and I have been talking a lot in the Itasca conversation is that a lot of the, the executives who are making decisions about benefits, investments, and pay rates uh, are probably making more money and own their homes. And they're not worried about housing instability, but we just want people to talk. 
to their employees who are the entry level staff on their payrolls and just ask them, you know, uh, what's their housing situation? What are they worried about? What do they, what do they dream of? And to, to work with staff to really appreciate what's going on. Because if, if you don't have a housing crisis, then, then you're not thinking about it all the time. If, if you can pay your bills, you're not thinking about it. If you've never worried about eviction, you know, it's not top of mind for you. But, um, uh, but for folks that have been, uh, not been able to afford the bills, even though they're working hard, uh, but that the job doesn't pay enough to be able to get ahead, we're supposed to have that conversation uh, specifically. And, and I think that this, this is where the evictions piece comes into play too. Um, you know, we had been asked to consider aligning our date with the federal date, you know, going all the way back to March. But back in March, we didn't know what the timeline of the virus is going to be. And here we are sitting in August and it's not under control. And the economy, it didn't make the V recovery uh, that people uh, hoped it would make if everything got managed quickly. And so we got to have a long haul attitude about this, both in terms of, of helping one another out, but then also uh, building back better. I just think that that's so important as we, as we think about this, what the uh, Lieutenant Governor says about, you know, I don't want to go back to normal because normal wasn't working for a lot of people. Yeah. And so let's use this pause, you know, I mean, sports are back on now. So I guess the pause is done a little bit, but let's, let's use this, this time where some of the distractions of social life aren't available to us and do our homework. Let's just do our homework and, and, and have these conversations and imagine what we could do um, if we were going to build this back better. I wonder well, something I'll jump in on if I could, just because um, you asked the question and Commissioner Ho was touching on it with our Atasca um, task force, which is really a follow-up on the governor's task force back from 2017, 2018, we said for this group, we just wanna take three of the 30 recommendations from the governor's task force and see if we could you know, move the ball forward. Um, we're gonna be releasing that port report here in a week or two. And one of the re recommendations, the second recommendation is to encourage employers to act directly in providing housing forward benefits to their employees. And part of what we talk about there is the, what uh, Commissioner Ho touched on, and that is just simply understanding to the degree that your employees are housing stressed. And the, the harsh reality as we've looked into this, and I'll confess even with my own company, you know, until you ask with an employee survey, confidential employee survey, and understand you don't realize even with the wages that you have at the low end of your pay scale, how many of your employees are truly housing stress where they don't really have an apartment or they don't have a home and they're actually living with others because they haven't been able to save enough for the first month's rent or for a down payment, what have you. And there's things that can be done by business to offer benefits, whether it's uh, assistance with a down payment, assistance with first and last month's rent, other things that might be part of the menu of benefits that include healthcare and 401k and other things that are out there. So that's one category that we talk about in this report. Um, there's obviously a myriad of other things that business could do as well. But I think that's one that is uh, beginning to get traction with the members of Atasca, which is a good thing. And I think if it were to be widely implemented uh, with the businesses based in Minnesota, I think it could have a very significant positive impact. Yeah. 
your your group does some indicators too in comparing our region to other regions as well. I think um, it showed that some 2019 numbers, if I have them right, showed that cost burden households, households that pay 30% or more of their income on monthly housing costs, that number is about 29.7% in MSP. And we compare fairly favorably to a set group of cities, but does your data show that that number is getting worse, getting better? Yeah, that's the, that's the major wake up call actually, from, partly from this report. And it's somewhat similar to what you just stated you know, in Minnesota, we always like to feel good about so many things that are great about our state, but there's a number of things from the uh, racial disparities and from this housing discrepancy that is moving in the wrong way, and it's going the wrong way fast. And the biggest one we had was the difference between population growth and housing unit production. And if you look at that, we're over the decades back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that was actually a strength for Minnesota where generally we had pretty decent availability of housing and compared to our peers like a Chicago or Atlanta or uh, even a Seattle, we were more affordable than they were uh, with similar income ranges. Now it's not true and it's becoming worse fast. So that in terms of one of the rankings, we, I think we had about 15 peer cities where you don't wanna be in the top one, two or three we are the third worst metropolitan area in measuring that disparity between number of new units being produced for residential units versus the growth in population. And we were, we were third to Atlanta and to San Francisco too that were worse than us. Others that were better than us that you'd be surprised by included Charlotte, um, Seattle, Portland, Denver, Austin, places like that. So yeah, it's, it's to me seeing that data and part of what we want to do with this report is have it be a wake up call that yeah. it's it's not good for us. And if we continue on kind of our current typical year to year path, it's going to get worse fast. And I don't think that's where any of us want it to be if you really stop and take a hard look at it. Um, and that's part of what this task force and this report that we'll be issuing is trying to trying to do is draw attention to that and have that be a wake-up call. This being an election year, um, how do we get this issue to be more on candidates' mouths, I guess, as they hit the campaign trail? Maybe even not just from a national level, but even getting it to some statewide attention. What different things could be done to kind of elevate this issue in our national conversation, do you think? Anyone can answer Well, that. one thing that... Oh, go ahead, Commissioner. Well, I mean, you know, I worked um, in D.C. For, for seven years and tapped in a little bit to, to some of the folks that are working on some of the national campaigns right now. And the amount of energy that went into trying to get a national debate question um, in the, the early part of the presidential election on housing, the amount of effort, uh, enormous, uh, the actual number of questions asked, zero, but mentions it got more mentions mm. so candidates actually more candidates had housing as a part of their platforms um uh in the in the democratic primary i mean there really wasn't a republican primary so it wasn't the same same energy but uh and you know so in it one once upon a time you could run for president and not have a housing theory fully spelled out and so i i think that that in and of itself is a shift now 
it's not going to be what they talk about if they don't think it's what the, the voters are going to be persuaded by. So, so, so voters in the media need to ask the question. And um, because uh, otherwise, you know, the, all the ways that all the, you know, what, what messages resonate and, you know, who's going to go high, who's going to go low, all of that. It's a completely different formula than what matters. Um, uh, it's kind of sad to actually have to say that. You know, uh, you, you know I, we don't have a ton of statewide um, uh, officers that are up here. Uh, you know, Senator Smith uh, is up for statewide office. I, um, but I think what's really happening right now is every single member of the Minnesota legislature is up for re-election. And, um, you know, I think that that is what constituents should be asking their legislative candidates is where do you stand on housing and, and, and what are you going to do on housing? You know, the governor and lieutenant governor ran with a commitment to housing. Uh, and and to people experiencing homelessness, I um, and and have you know tried to follow through on that. Uh, you know, I think it's going to take some additional work with the legislature to do that. So it's the right time to be asking the state house and state senate candidates uh, because everyone's up in a race. And some of them pr probably not as competitive a race, but if you ask your legislator where's what's their position on this and what are they going to do about it, you know, and they can't articulate. A, a solid answer, then I think it's it's kind of saying you know you need to you need to demonstrate that this is something that that, that you're going to work on because this is something that matters to me as one of your constituents, and that's uh, no matter where you live in the state of Minnesota, um, uh, that is happening uh, on your local ballot, and you have uh, you know you have the opportunity to ask those local candidates um, from every party that's running for that seat in in your district what their position is on housing and, and help elevate that. Thanks. Um, I know we've talked about this next subject a lot already, but I just wanted to kind of gather our thoughts too. But that is about race equity. Um, you know, it seems like now is our moment to do something. And, and again, I know we've touched this subject, but I wanted to come back to it. Um, how should we build a whole new equitable system? And I hate to do that with only five minutes or so left in our conversation, but what are some key ideas? I mean, well, let's, I have, let's support Trent and Cian. Let's yeah, start there. I, yeah, exactly. I, I have an thank idea. You. You know, yeah, thank you, Jennifer. I, I think that, um, you know, uh, George, George, the George Floyd uh, incident has really pulled the wool back on um, the systemic racism in our policing. And, um, you know, there, there, there's, this has been a conversation often for a really long time. You know, if police officers, number one, I want to say, uh, you know, not all officers are, are bad, bad people. Um, but if police officers had some skin in the game, right, if they had to carry uh, an insurance policy um, and, and actually, um, you know, had, had things taken away from them for engaging, right, in um, activities that, that, that result in horrific, horrific uh, loss of life, uh, mostly to, to communities of color. And, and let's be honest, and poor white folk too. Poor white folk have been being killed by the police um, alongside of black and brown people. So I think um, police reform is huge because look, I am a mother of three black boys and I fear for their lives. 
every single time they leave the house. Mm -hmm. And I should not have to live that way. And I should not have to fear for the safety of my sons. So police reform is huge. And I can go on and on and on, um, but I'll, I'll stop there. And I, I just want to add on what Cian had said earlier is, you know, jobs are critical, um, um, uh, which is, you know, which is why, you know, we, which, which is why we need to have more jobs. We have, we have to educate, uh, educate, educate, educate. Um, we have to have, I think, you know, we have to have all the parties involved. And I know I'm, I'm I don't want to pick on real estate agents because I love real estate agents, uh, but I think. So I, I think we need real estate agents at the table. Um, I really do. Um, so they understand products and programs uh, for first-time home buyers. Um, so they can under they understand why a first-time home buyer uh, has to go FHA um, versus a conventional product. Um, I think uh, HUD needs to get involved on a student loan perspective. We haven't talked about that. You know, if you're if you're a, a minor, an African American person, and you have student loans, and you go to school, and they they sell you on the American dream, go to school for four years, get your BA degree, get your master's degree, but you come out of school with a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars in student loans, you're making forty five thousand dollars a year. You want to you want a piece of the American pie and be that first time home buyer, but your credit scores aren't as great as they should be because you got you know because of whatever reasons. But now you can't go conventional and use an income-based payment plan. You're all, you, you have to use the student loan HUD uh, a student plan at 1%. Now, do the math, $100,000 at 1% for someone who makes $45,000 or $50,000 a year, plus the other debt that they have, they're not going to qualify. They're not going to qualify. So, you know, how do, we, how do we change it? I mean, those are some things that I think we need to have more conversation on, on top of the police reform. Uh, how do we move that needle from 24% to 40% to 50% to 60% and so on? You know, so again, it's what we talked about earlier today, where if we're all going to be in this together and we're all going to be a community, let's go to work. Let's start making it happen. One word I would add to that is set goals. I think that there's great power in setting goals because everybody can say, I mean, all kinds of people, all kinds of organizations, all kinds of uh, institutions can say we're working harder we're doing more we're you know we're talking about this we're talking about hey look over there there's an anecdote we did this interesting thing it's the goals and i would just hearken back to the goals of the governor's housing task force they were concrete they were founded based on facts uh they were based on the problem facts and they were based on the solution facts and uh they came out of a state uh, collaborative, public-private partnership. You know, Itasca was involved from day one, still carries the torch, and uh, now we have the scorecard, which says, how well are we doing? If you want to look something up to see how well we're doing, look for the Minnesota Housing Task Force uh, housing scorecard. That's not quite right, but you'll, Google will find it. And and uh, it will say we are not doing well on in, uh, home ownership disparity. It's a downward arrow. Minnesota, not good. We're doing good on production. You know, at least we were before the, I think we still are. So I think goals are really powerful. If we set goals and we're all held accountable, business, government, faith community, nonprofits, philanthropy, 
we have to kind of keep that accountability up there really high around around the goals that we believe in. I, I would just add that um, you know it's not Minnesota nice to talk about why we score so low, and we have to get comfortable with the discomfort of naming it. It didn't just work this way. Minnesota was built on a set of policies that were designed to take land away from Native Americans and discriminate against African Americans. And so it's not a surprise that, that, that we are here. But knowing that we are towards the bottom means that other communities have figured out how to be towards the top. And so, you know, uh, the work that Minnesota Housing has done to do more than double the rate of the mortgage industry in terms of lending to people of color and indigenous families is, is by design. It's because we created partnerships with folks like CN and Trent and the Home um, Ownership Alliance and the and Home Ownership Center and that we, we rethought uh, uh, what we fund and we rethought what the programming needed to look like. And we are continually challenging ourselves to rethink how we look at things like credit because credit is inherently racist and predatory too. So you can't just say we're gonna deal with the housing production stuff without understanding how these things are connected and being the courageous person who helps people who don't understand why, understand why. And, and so that's, um, it's, it's a fascinating conversation inside of Minnesota housing right now but it's also a fantastic conversation with our partners. And I just, um, you know, it was fun to see the lineup for this because we view all of you as, as, as our close partners. And I think all of us are trying to find courageous ways to just name what needs to be fixed and to step out of the comfort of Minnesota Nice to do what needs to be done. I think an ending word would be to quote the great John Lewis, it's time to get into it's time to get into some good problems. good trouble yeah <laughs> that's, that's really good <laughs> well do you does anyone else have anything they'd like to add lisa or colin okay well we're coming up to our time limit here thank you all for this wonderful conversation i know we could sit here another hour and a half and keep talking i really appreciate it um, i'd like to thank everyone out there listening too thank you for joining us for this conversation um, i appreciate it it's an issue that uh you know we just need to keep talking about and like warren said set those goals and uh like trent said we'll get into some good trouble so um thank you all again and thanks for the conversation thank you for listening and please subscribe to beyond the skyline we can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.